This is Greyhound Nation, Episode 4, recorded Friday, August 28, 2020. Charlie Blanning, A Life in Greyhounds. Greyhound Nation is a podcast for Greyhound enthusiasts produced by Greyhound Enthusiasts. To learn more about our show and its hosts, visit our website at greyhoundnation.dog. That's greyhoundnation.dog. Hello and welcome to Greyhound Nation. I'm Michael Burns. And now, here's your host, John Parker. Welcome back, everybody. I want to take a few minutes here before we bring on our guest to thank everybody that's uh, listened to the podcast so far. We've gotten universally positive comments about it, which we really appreciate. Uh, please feel free to leave us a comment on any of the episodes. Uh, give us a good review if you're so moved. We'd love to hear from you about uh, any ideas you may have for guests or show ideas. Uh, we'll definitely take those seriously and put those in the mix. I also want to take a few minutes to thank my producer, Michael Burns. Uh, I've learned through the podcast creation process that uh, a lot of the uh, work is front-end loaded, and uh, Michael's done a yeoman's job uh, with that in getting everything uh, set up from a technical standpoint and getting it all on on all the uh, various podcast apps and then uh, uh, massaging the sound in his post-production wizardry uh, those of you who have commented on how the sound is good and even in professional sounding, that's all that's all up to Michael. I just sit here and yak, and he uh, he does the technical stuff. So, Michael, well done, and thank you very much. Thank you. Well, I'm real pleased today to have as a guest Charlie Blanning. Uh, Charlie and I have known each other a goodly number of years. Um, if you ever wanted, to, if you were a greyhound enthusiast and you wanted to have a great life in greyhounds. You couldn't do much better than what uh, Charlie has done. He's a third-generation greyhound man. His his grandfather and his father bred and ran greyhounds in both coursing and racing over the years. Uh, he grew up uh, uh, as a child playing with the puppies and going to coursing meetings and the racetrack. Uh, he turned his uh, riding skills in the starting in the 70s into being what's called a coursing correspondent. Uh, he wrote uh, columns and coursing meeting reports for the field and the sporting press. And then into the 80s, he's written for the Racing Post, Greyhound Star, and Greyhound Magazine. He became the secretary of the National Coursing Club and keeper of the Greyhound Stud Book of England in 1988. And uh, that his job duties entailed going to coursing meetings. That's, that's one of the many duties he had. You can't get much better than that to get paid to go to coursing meetings. Uh, he, um, uh, he retired from that position in 2007 and turned uh, back to uh, writing as, a, as an avocation. Uh, he's written uh, two books since he retired. One, the great recent book, The Greyhound and the Hare, which is the definitive history of the greyhound breed and coursing. And then he's got another book in the works right now called "Please, Mister: The Golden Age of Greyhound Racing." Uh, we're going to hear. A little, we're not going to talk a lot about that today, but we're going to hear a little bit about the status of it and how you can get it and so forth toward the end of the show. He's also written two other books: uh, "A Coursing Year," uh, which he wrote with Terry Thorne, and then he wrote um, "The Waterloo Cup: The First 150 Years" with Sir Mark Prescott. So he's written a total of four books and innumerable. Uh, uh, columns and articles over the years, coursing reports and so forth. So, Charlie, with all that, welcome. Thank you very much, John. Uh, <clears throat> I can first, I remember first meeting you in uh, about uh, <clears throat> 1998 when uh, we went to the Waterloo Cup for the first time. And um, you were very nice to us on the field. Sir Mark Prescott saw us first, came over and um, uh, introduced himself, and then we, we later came to you. So us Americans were very impressed that we got to meet two coursing luminaries uh, on our first trip over. So that was wonderful. Uh, let's. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about uh, kind of the beginnings of coursing. Uh, there's lots of misunderstanding about it. Uh, so let's talk historically. When did coursing, when is coursing first recorded as emerging as a separate and distinct sport from hunting? Well, I think it started to emerge, John, in the 
second century AD, because as with everything, when people write about something, a sport or history or, or, or whatever, uh, that's the confirmation that it's becoming popular, that people are interested. And in the second century AD, we have writings um, in particular by a man called Flavius Arianus, which describes the method of coursing at the time, which is surprisingly similar to the way it's still conducted today. So there we were, second century AD, and also on Roman artifacts like friezes and so on and vases, you see hares and greyhounds very much like the greyhounds of today. Uh, they were there really sort of fully formed. We, we don't think the Romans um, invented coursing, if we can put it that way. It was very much a Gallic sport, the sport of the Celts, probably in what is now modern France and also in modern Great Britain. It was where, the, where coursing took place at the time. And from that moment onwards, there is evidence of interest in coursing, in greyhounds, which persists all the way through to the present day. And it, it emerged, it was, it was a distinct sport from hunting, wasn't it? Yes, it was. It, it, one thing that Flavius Arianus doesn't go into um, in any particular detail is the way that coursing is competitive. Um, he sees it as a contest between the greyhounds and the hare. But um, already they were only running two greyhounds at a time. One of the um, major distinctions of, of, of coursing is that the dogs don't run in a pack. They run one against the other. In other words, competition is absolutely vital. Arianus says nothing about a question of judging whether one dog is better than the other. But the very fact that they only ran two greyhounds rather than any number shows that it was one against one. It wasn't a, a pack of hounds looking to kill a quarry. The interest was in the ability of the, of, of the dogs themselves. That was the key interest as far as coursing people were concerned. And that remains the same to this day. Yes, I think a lot a lot gets lost on the fact that the the object of coursing is not to catch or kill the hare. The object is to test the dogs against the hare. There's the if famous want, there's a famous quote from Arianus. I bet you can quote it from memory. <laughs> well, I won't. I, I, I won't. But um, what it basically says is that um, the, com the the contest is not between the dogs and the hare. Um, is between the dogs and the hare, but if the hare escapes, the courser is gratified because um, he sees has no wish for the hare to be killed. If you want to kill hares, or for that matter, anything else with greyhounds, it's very simple. Take, them, take as many as you can out together. If you have about a dozen greyhounds in a pack and let them off after a hare, it'll all be over in about 10 seconds. But coursing people don't do that. Their, their concern is with one dog against the other, the competition, the, um, the value, the quality of the dogs. When did, uh, when did coursing, when did the sport change to, uh, to, to bring judging into the mix? Well, it was certainly uh, by the, by the uh, 16th century because in the 16th century, the first official rules, if you like, were drawn up. We think they were drawn up between 1560 and 1571 uh, during the, the reign of Queen Elizabeth I. And they detail how actually courses should be judged. But because uh, under royal command, it had been decided it was necessary to produce such a code of rules, it's obvious that coursing as a competitive sport had been active and popular for many years before that. This was simply an attempt 
to produce a uniform code, whereas probably in the, in, in the past, people had rather made it up as they went along. And although it's usually uh, um, considered that the Duke of Norfolk was the man who drew up the rules, he was in fact only one of numbers of nobles and gentlemen who are actually listed as contributing to, to the list of rules that um, are now known as Norfolk's rules. Because being the most senior nobleman on the list, he's mentioned first. Didn't do her much good. She chopped his head off about 11 years later. <laughs> but not over unhappiness with the coursing rules, no doubt. Uh, no, no. It was, um, as, 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 as ever, and so frequently in history, it was all to do with religion. Well, Queen Elizabeth apparently got her uh, love of greyhounds and coursing from her father, Henry VIII, because I know he's got uh, greyhounds in his coat of arms, and um, I believe there's uh, records of his uh, wagering on the outcome of courses. That, that's correct. And it goes back to all the, the, the tutors descend uh, from a, a brother of, uh, um, as you were, a, a son of Edward III, John of Gaunt. And John of Gaunt was the first of that family to take the greyhound into his coat of arms. As a, it was a fact as a symbol of fidelity. The greyhound was seen as a very much a, 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 a faithful dog. And that went all the way down through until it reached the Tudors. Um, Henry VII, Henry VIII's father, for instance, uh, had a white greyhound as part of his coat of arms. Uh, poor old Henry VIII. Um, he eventually he found himself paying a fine of 10 shillings, which was quite a lot of money in those days, because um, uh, that his girlfriend at the time, who's Anne Boleyn, whom he later married, and then later chopped her, her head off as well, um, Anne Boleyn's greyhound killed a cow. So the king had to pay compensation of 10 shillings to the farmer who'd, um, who'd lost his beast. That must have been a heck of a greyhound to kill a kill a cow. It must have been. It must have been. It was obviously worth the ten shillings. Yes. <laughs> so we come up through the centuries and we get to uh, different forms of organizing coursing. Uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, about that uh, in in the open. Well, let's talk about open coursing first. What is open coursing? How does it differentiated from park coursing? Well, open coursing is because the ground over which the greyhounds run is open. It's not confined in any sort of way. There's no question of an enclosed ground um, which keeps both the dog and the hare w within a given space. In open coursing, open coursing remained right up until the moment it was banned in 2005 the, the, the popular form of coursing, at least in England, Wales, and Scotland, um, open coursing means that the courses were of unpredictable length. They could, in fact, go on, if the country was open enough, to say two or three minutes each. And as some of the major states, uh, coursing states, were asking the greyhounds to run perhaps six courses in three days to win, you needed an extremely brave and an extremely fit greyhound to stand up to that sort of um, sort of running. They had to have enormous enormous stamina. And then in open coursing, you have two types, I believe, driven and and walked up. Tell us a little bit about the differences in those two. Yes, well, walked up coursing. Uh, what happens there is that. You, the, the ground is chosen to where they think the hares may be sitting. And the uh, people who are coursing, the coursers, make up a line and walk forward across, say, a field um, or moorland. And when a hare gets up in front of them, as it will sometimes, because, of course, it knows the people are coming and therefore... Um, as, as, as soon as they get too close, it gets up and runs away from them. And then the greyhounds are slipped. And thus, it, it, it walked up coursing because the hares are being literally, if you like, walked up. 
But driven coursing is where the dogs, before they start, are stationary, uh, usually concealed behind a shy, which is a kind of uh, a hide of some kind or behind a hedge. And beaters are used much in the same way as in game shooting to push the hares forward uh, in front of the greyhounds. And then after a, a given distance, after the hare has run a given distance, then the dogs are released. So you might call that static coursing. Yes, yes. And that generally is done on, on one field as opposed to the walked up where you cover the whole countryside. As you, That's right. I mean, you, you, uh, some of the meetings which I can remember um, going to, which were entirely walked up, were over the downs in Hertfordshire. And there you could walk for miles and miles and miles during the, the day to, for, for the, the, the program to be completed. Um, so it, it, it was great fun. Um, it, it, it was you, you didn't get the number of courses in a day that you might do with driven coursing, but the actual uh, sport itself was, was, it was, it was great and really enjoyable. Um, e even when sometimes you found at the end of the day, I can remember once in Hertfordshire, walking past a small village and the school uh, was just coming out and the lights were on in all the houses and it was getting dark. And I said to my wife, I said, I haven't the slightest idea where we are. It's getting dark. <laughs> How are we ever going to get back to the car? And then magically, about two minutes later, there we were. We'd actually walked back to where we started. <laughs> but it's great fun. And, yeah. of course, uh, it's good exercise, too. Well, I experienced uh, 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 walked-up coursing out in uh, California a couple of times. That's most of our American coursing today. In fact, all of our American coursing today is is walked up, and I can attest to the the distances uh, you walk. You'll see you'll walk what seems like miles and miles, and and no hairs will pop up, and then all of a sudden, you know, they'll they'll pop up all over the place more than you want. So um, it definitely is uh, is good exercise. No question about that. And of course, more often than not, the hairs will sit tight uh, in their forms, and the next thing you know, you turn your, you know, you turn round, and there they are heading off at a smart pace in the opposite direction to to where you're you're, you're going. So <laughs> um, you know, you don't get it, you you don't manage to course them all. Now, park coursing emerged uh, when uh, in the eighteen seventies. The, the first enclosed meeting was at a place called Plumpton in Sussex. In fact, um, in Australia, where enclosed coursing was very popular uh, right up until the 1960s, they actually referred to a coursing enclosure as a Plumpton after the, uh, the first place where it took place. And, I mean, enclosed um, coursing is really what, you know, it's, it's what it says on the tin. The, the coursing ground itself is enclosed, and instead of the coursing going to the hares, the hares come to the coursing. The, the, the hares are uh, netted up uh, a few weeks before the meeting and brought to the, coursing, the enclosed coursing ground, and they are lodged there and literally trained to run up the coursing field and in, in, in the time before before the meeting. So on the day, the hares are released one at a time into the enclosed coursing ground. They race up to the top of the field because they've been there several times before. They know exactly where they're going and they get there, as Mark would say, as quickly as possible. And the, the dogs, um, the, the, the hares run to an escape under which the hares can, can, can get, but the dogs cannot. So as soon as the hare escapes, then the course is over. And as the ground is enclosed, you can predict just how long the course is going to last for, and when the course is over, there's no problem in catching your dog. What's the typical duration of, a par of an enclosed coursing course? It would vary, of course, depending on the length of the field. Um, but it will be somewhere between, I would suspect, 25 and 40 seconds. 
but 40 seconds will be a long course on an enclosed ground. The old coursing ground that they used to use for the Irish Cup, uh, just outside Limerick in Ireland, at, at a place called Clunana, that was the largest enclosed coursing ground I've ever seen. And there the courses could go on for quite some considerable time. I mean, a course of about 40, perhaps a little more, 40 seconds would not have been unusual. But uh, now that they're running at Clonmel, the Clonmel Festival, where the Derby and the Oaks are run, I wouldn't imagine the courses there would last for more than 30 seconds at the utmost. Cor park coursing and closed coursing became fairly popular in England, but then kind of dwindled and, and moved, essentially moved to, um, to Ireland, didn't it? Well, the, 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 there are several reasons for that. The reason why it failed in England was that it was a deliberate attempt to bring coursing to the city. The, the, the great grounds were either um, were usually on, on the outskirts of a great, great town. And in fact, some of them, they started as coursing grounds and then were converted to horse race tracks afterwards. Uh, one of them, for instance, Haydock Park, which is just outside Liverpool, uh, that started as a coursing ground. And when it proved that the coursing couldn't attract crowds uh, to, so it could pay its way as a commercial proposition, they put a, a, a race course round the outside of the coursing ground. And Haydock is still an important horse race track to this day. And the same applied at places like Gosforth Park at Newcastle, uh, Four Oaks at Birmingham, Kempton Park, uh, outside London. The whole purpose of the affair was to, to turn it into a spectator sport and actually make, make money from it. And when that failed, so did the enclosed grounds, because the investment that was required was really quite considerable. In Ireland, the, the, the Irish... Um, uh, for the Irish, even to this day, enclosed course was very popular. It's really to do with the agriculture. Uh, the fields in Ireland tend to be small. Uh, they're heavily enclosed by walls and hedges. It would be difficult in quite a lot of Ireland to run an open course meeting, even if you wanted to. So enclosed coursing, when it became popular in the 1870s, 1880s, as far as Ireland was concerned, was this was a godsend. And um, bringing the hares to a field which was large enough to act as a coursing ground was an answer to an awful lot of problems as far as they were concerned. And I know uh, enclosed coursing was the primary form of it uh, in, in America, wasn't it? Yes, it was. And um, as <laughs> what happened there was that, of course, um, coursing began, um, predictably enough, on, on the Great Plains um, of, of the Midwest, because, of course, jackrabbits were um, a considerable agricultural pest. And also, I should mention, in California, we think that probably the first official coursing club in the United States was in, in um, California at Merced. And uh, there, of course, the, 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 the jackrabbits were a pest um, to the crops of the, the vineyards and the fruit, uh, fruit groves and the orchards and so on and so forth. So um, obviously, with so many jackrabbits, Coursing uh, was a popular sport amongst you know, the, the pioneers of the time. Uh, the problem with it was that uh, because the plains were so open, the dogs could run for miles and miles and miles. Um, I've read reports of open coursing meetings, say, in Kansas or Nebraska. And because everyone followed on horseback. And off would go the jackrabbit, off would go the dogs, and they'd run and run and run and run. So when they started importing expensive dogs from England uh, to, to run at their coursing meetings, they began to think, oh, this is really a bit too much of a good thing. And if we had a nice and closed meeting instead, it would, it would suit everyone. And they usually uh, chose uh, a, a, a city 
as they would call it, in the Midwest at the time, which means there are about 500 inhabitants, <laughs> obviously next to a railway line, what you call a railroad. Because if you had a railroad, it meant that instead of having just the, the coursing enthusiasts at a, a small town to run at the meeting, everyone leapt onto the railroads, whether they were in Nebraska, Kansas, Missouri, Ohio, wherever, got on the train, and off they went to wherever the big meeting was of that particular week. So in closed coursing, that was the answer as far as uh, the United States was concerned. They had lots very, of them. Very popular in uh, California, I believe. Yes. Um, it, was, it was hugely popular in San Francisco. San Francisco, I think at one time, had five different coursing enclosures. The great ones were the Union Park and Inglestone, and they would run on Sunday afternoons, and they would pull a crowd. Um, we're talking about now about 1900, turn of the century. They would pull a crowd of probably five, five or six thousand people. Um, it was an enormously uh, popular spectator sport at the time. Was there wagering on it too? Yeah, huge. Um, they used to have what they referred to as pool betting. Uh, which in England we would refer to as the total Isaiah or the tote. And um, also they would have what they call in, in, in the parlance of the time handbooks, i.e. bookmakers. So you had bookmakers, you had pool, pool sellers, um, and betting was, 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 was enormous. And as you may well imagine, various disapproving societies, of course, did their best to, 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 to ban it as quickly as possible. <laughs> Don't want the proletariat to have too much fun, I suppose. No, 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 too much fun, as the old song goes. Well, uh, returning to England, how did coursing become organized from just uh, several farmers with their greyhounds out wanting to have a impromptu competition to actually formal, organized competitions? Well, I'm afraid it wouldn't have been farmers, John, because, as you know, Britain even to this day is a class-ridden society, and um, farmers were not, by law, were not allowed to go coursing. Only the, uh, people of noble rank, or at least squires, or, in fact, I think it was an income of a certain, um, you know, hundreds of pounds a year, were actually permitted to have a greyhound, and permitted to go coursing. And it wasn't until as late as 1831 that you could simply put your hand in your pocket, buy a license, and you could go to a coursing meeting and run a dog. Um, it came just a year before we totally reformed our parliament, parliamentary voting. Uh, we, we sorted out field sports first, so that um, the hoi polloi, as they, they would call them, the hoi polloi could pay so much uh, a year, and that meant that they could go to a course of meeting. But before that, no, they weren't allowed to. Only gentlemen and um, the aristocracy. And uh, the, the, the first actual coursing club was formed when and by whom? Well, that was in 1776, and that was formed by the Earl of Orford. Uh, this was in Norfolk um, in England. And although it was the Swatham Society, and although it was a coursing club, which had members, and they ran actually in a, a, a organized events of, say, you know, 16 dogs, a 16 dog stake, as we would call it, all the members were of the hierarchy or the aristocracy. Uh, no one should mistake this for being some kind of democratic revolution. It wasn't. Uh, that didn't come until 1831. You and I wouldn't have been allowed to go. Well, we'd been allowed to go, but we wouldn't have been, wouldn't have been allowed to run. And then let's talk a little bit about uh, the founding of the Waterloo Cup and its transformative uh, effects on coursing in England. Yes, the, 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 um, the Waterloo Cup was first run in 1836. And it was run um, on land which was owned by the Earl of Sefton. They'd been coursing there before the Waterloo Cup. The, the Alt Car Club was founded in 1825. 
But there again, it was very much for the, the local worthies, um, not for everyone. But um, in 1836, five years after democracy at last came to coursing, a man called William Lynn, who kept the Waterloo Hotel in Liverpool, decided that uh, he, he'd been to the coursing meetings and uh, he, he, he thought that it would be good for his hotel if um, there was a sort of what you might call a sporting festival. So he came up with the idea of having a coursing meeting and during the coursing meeting there would also be a, a race meeting at um, a place called Aintree which was very close to where they, they, they ran the coursing and this could go on for about three days, fill the hotel, um, he would do a good bit of business and everyone would enjoy themselves. So in 1836, he got permission from the Earl of Sefton to run an eight-dog stake as a kind of experiment. And this was an open stake. And what made it different was that the prize money was considerable for the time. In Before that, most coursing stakes were, the, the important thing for it was um, the, the trophy that they ran for. They, they, they weren't, the, the gentlemen weren't much concerned with prize money. But Lynn got together a sweepstake, which made it perhaps the most, um, the richest stake, even though it was only for eight dogs, which had been seen up to that time. And it was great success. Thousands of people went, everyone loved it. And so the next year, it was increased to 16 runners and then to 32 and then eventually, it was um, in, in, in 1857, uh, it was increased to 64 runners. And that's how it remained up until the ban in 2005. But it's called the Waterloo Cup, nothing to do with the battle. It's simply that the, the, the chap's hotel was called the Waterloo Hotel. Oh, and his race. We want to say something about the race. That he, yes. What he used to what he used to do when it was a 32-runner event was that their first day of the festival, they would have um, the, the first couple of rounds of the coursing stake. And on the second day, they'd go um, to Aintree for his steeplechase. And this in itself became so popular that the local press started to refer to it as the Grand National. And then you would have coursing on the third day. So William Lynn, he managed to invent the Waterloo Cup and the Grand National all at the same time. Pretty amazing accomplishment when you think about it. And it, and it you know, it, both events came, and of course, Grand National still run today. It um, is. It's, they came down, you know, hundreds, uh, 130 some years uh, later. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, he was, a man, he was a man with vision. But of course, what was happening in England at the time was that people were getting richer. They had more disposable income, and they wanted to spend it on leisure pursuits. And as England, whatever um, people, uh, other authorities may, may, may hope for, as England is a gambling nation and always has been, of course, in the 19th century, a lot of their leisure time they spent gambling. Yeah, I know in England, uh, we, we, you, you folks don't have quite the puritanical attitude about wagering that we have over here you'll you'll bet on about anything which That's i think right. is fine <laughs> yes yes and, and of course um where, where the english have spread to uh, places like australia of course you know they'll they'll simply bet they'll bet on a fly crawling up a wall <laughs> give them half a chance when did the uh when did the waterloo cup become Three day, a three day, you know, straight three days competition when they turned it into a 64 dog uh, stake. And that was in 1857. Yeah. Um, so, about, you know, just, just, just 21 years after the event had first taken place. Yeah. And um, from then on, it was always a, a 64 runner event. There were bigger ones um, later in the, the 18, later in the 19th century. Uh, stakes for 128 dogs were not uncommon, but the Waterloo Cup remained the stake that everyone wanted to win. That was the, you know, the classic. Yeah, 
and and it's it's just amazing to contemplate the difference demands on the dogs that in in the Waterloo Cup they had to run to get to the final they had to run three days in a row twice a day, and yeah. you consider that with the uh, the demands made on a racing greyhound of running for thirty seconds once every three or four or five days. That's right. <laughs> when when the track started in California, uh, the you know the racetrack. Uh, the first, when the first Greyhound racing track started in California in 1920, uh, pe- people who, who historians have, have, have been somewhat puzzled by the fact that the dogs sometimes used to run twice in an afternoon. So that, and they said, um, well, it must be that they didn't have enough dogs to choose from. They had loads of dogs to run, but of course, being coursing people, these dogs have been coursing down at Merced and places like that. And um, running twice in an afternoon was nothing to them, particularly when it was around a tiny little 440-yard track. Um, they, they, you know, they, they, they hardly started, started to pant by the time they'd run twice. <laughs> yeah, we, when, <clears throat> when we would introduce uh, American racing people to the fact that we were taking their retirees out for lure coursing, where the dogs run at least twice and sometimes four and five, uh, three and four times in a day, they were just aghast that we would run the dogs for longer distances that many that many times. But it was a credit to their breeding that the, the old coursing genes were, were still there and the dogs could, a fit dog could easily do it. Yes. Um, and the funny thing is that that blood you see, John, it's still there. I'm, I'm, I'm terribly lucky. I have um, the original painting of a greyhound called Babbitt the Bowster, and Babbitt the Bowster ran up for the Waterloo Cup uh, to Master McGrath in, in, in 1869. It, it took Master McGrath to beat her. And in fact, a lot of people are on the field say that the bitch Babbitt the Bowster won and the master was beaten. But then people always quarrel on the coursing field about who won and who, who was beaten. But anyway, Babbitt the Bowster ran up for the Waterloo Cup but she also won two years running the Great Scarisbrick Stake for 128 runners, which means that she ran seven times over four days to win, and she did that twice. Well, not surprisingly, um, the greyhounds which descend from her, you know, if you keep looking back through your greyhounds, you'll probably find her there and thereabouts somewhere. Babbitt the Bowster. No wonder they could uh, they could run a at least a, run around a, a, a track for 550 yards if you were descending from a greyhound which could run seven times in four days over open country. Amazing. Yeah, it really is wonderful, amazing. bitch. Yes. Well, that's a great history of coursing, Charlie. Let's let's turn to your history. Uh, your uh, your grandfather, who's also whose name was also Charlie. Yep. Uh, was the first of your family to uh, to get into uh, greyhounds and coursing and racing. How how did that come about? Well, my grandfather um, and his brother Arthur, um, Charlie and Arthur together, uh, they they were great sporting lads. Um, and what what they enjoyed to begin with, what, what they enjoyed most was harriers, which is hunting hares um, on horseback. Um, in, instead of um, you know foxes, uh, the, the the quarry was the hare rather than the fox. And as the years went on, um, and we got into the 1920s, they gave up harriers and took up coursing because a local uh, nobleman who was called the Marquis of Bath had started a coursing club on his land at a place called Froome, and. Uh, both my grandfather and my great uncle felt that this, this was worth trying. So they managed to buy some greyhounds and went coursing. And only a couple of years later, of course, greyhound racing came to England from America. And after that, the hunting rather took second place and they became fully committed to uh, breeding their own greyhounds, running them both on the coursing field and on the tracks. There were loads of tracks in those days. Uh, the the city which I was 
um, born near, I was born 11 miles from a city called Bristol. And in the late 1920s, there were three greyhound tracks in Bristol, which my uh, grandfather could choose from to run his dogs, plus the coursing through. So they kept pretty busy. Did the did the racing greyhounds become coursing greyhounds in the season? In other words, did they were they laid off from the track and uh, just taken coursing, or did they continue to do both through the coursing season? Well, when I when I was a, um, a, a small boy, um, my, my father used to breed a litter of greyhounds every year, and what would happen is that he would run them on the coursing field in the autumn and the late winter and see how they went, and the best ones. I have to admit, he kept at home and they would go coursing the next year. And the other ones then would go to the track and run on the track instead. Um, because both my father and my grandfather much preferred coursing, I have to say, to track racing, although they did both. Uh, they thought that the coursing was much better sport, much more fun. And so the, um, the, 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 the ones from the litter which weren't, which weren't best they would run on the track. What's your earliest Greyhound memory? <laughs> well, I don't know. I should think, I mean, I think lying in my cot, I could hear dogs barking. So, um, <laughs> because we always, we always had dogs. There were always dogs about, you know, there were, there were, um, there were always the puppies and the older dogs. I, I suppose in terms of numbers that at any, any time when I was growing up, uh, my father would have about 20 greyhounds around the place. I, I can remember, I can't remember what you wrote it in, but I, I thought this was great that when you, would, as any child will, will complain to your mother, you were bored or what can I do? You were told to, you were dispatched out to play with the pups. Go and play with the pups, yes. Go on, make a, go, go and run them, run them up and down, because <laughs> as both you and I know, a, a, a great a greyhound puppy which isn't taught to gallop and taught to gallop early is not going to be much good as far as racing or coursing is concerned. Um, they have to run. And so you've got small boys who will run about and let them chase them and so on and so forth and also handle them to make sure that they're not too nervous because greyhounds can be nervous if they're not handled properly and handled early. That was, you know, just playing with them was was a benefit. Yeah. Well, it, it, everybody loves playing with greyhound puppies. What a great childhood, mm. uh, <laughs> you know, pastime to do uh, when you were bored. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Shouldn't be bored. No one should be bored. Not yeah, when we greyhounds always, are about. When we have a litter on the ground, we love it when uh, children visit because we we dispat we do the same thing your mother do. We take the pups out there and, and run out and make them chase you. And so that's right. They, and they love yeah. doing it. And uh, we're we're yeah. too old to run the puppies, and so uh, <laughs> we love it when children visit to uh, to play with the puppies. And as you point out, it's great socialization as well. Yes. So, what was your? Uh, you think you went to a coursing meeting or the racetrack first in your in your youth? Oh, I went to the track first um, because, um, again, of course, it's always mother, isn't it? Um, m mother decided that, of course, that I, it would be too cold and, um, you know, for a very small boy and I would get bored and more likely also, of course, I get in the way. So um, I was taken to the track first and I just loved the track. The track was great, great evening out because um, all the English tracks at the time used to have a mysterious place called the club. My father used to disappear into the club, which is up a set of stairs at the Lowell track where we used to go. And um, I don't know what he did there, <laughs> but um, every now and again, he would emerge and come down the steps and give me enough money to buy a hot dog um, or give me a, you know, a, a glass of orange jade or something like that. And I, I was just left to my own devices, which, which I always loved anyway. And I used to go around picking up the tote tickets and pretending I'd had bets on the races and <laughs> so on and so forth and eat hot dogs. It was, it was all right. Now, when you got old enough to handle the dogs, uh, what were you, as, a, as a child, what were your jobs at, at, at the racetrack and at the coursing meetings? Well, of course, at the track itself, um, um, the, 
the way of, of British tracks at the time was that uh, you didn't train your own dogs. You always handed over your dogs to a professional trainer and they were kept at the track. And so uh, when you went to the track, it was only to see them run. You were not actually involved in their training in any kind of way. And our dogs were always trained by um, a relation of ours, um, my uncle Harry Sayer. And Harry, Harry was in charge of the dogs at the track, so it was, it was purely watching them run. But on the coursing field, of course, naturally enough, it was running after them. Because in a course, um, as you would know, um, in open coursing, the dogs could go just about anywhere. So as soon as the course was over, as soon as they'd lost sight of the hare and they'd stopped, you needed someone to run in and get hold of the dog and put the lead on him to make sure he didn't run any further than he had to. And so, of course, as soon as I was old enough to run, I ran after greyhounds. That's a great job to have. Hope, it was a great job. And you hope when you got near them, they weren't going to then sort of take one look at you and disappear in the opposite direction, <laughs> which, of course, some of some of them had a nasty habit of doing. Sometimes it was because if they were nervous, they might be, you know, they, they might be difficult to pick up, as we called it. And sometime, I think they did it just for sheer devilment. Yeah. They'd see you coming and they'd, they'd start looking around and seeing where the next hair was coming from, so on and so forth. But the job was grab them as quickly as possible. Put who, the was the, on. who was the best greyhound your family ever, ever bred and, and raised? Ah, the best. The best, it's difficult to say. Um, we had an extremely good dog called Beaver, who won the South England Cup at Newmarket. That was the 32-dog stake. He was a grand dog, and he ran well in the Waterloo Cup as well. Um, we never, father, father never got nearer than the fourth round of the Waterloo Cup, what they call the last eight. That was the best that he did. But we always trained our own dogs, and we always bred our own. Um, my grandfather had a marvellous dog called Sporting Life and he won, I think it was five big, big trophies and we still have the cups to this day we've still got them Oh, that's marvellous So we, we, move, we move forward into the 70s uh, and you, uh, we find you turning your uh, riding skills to coursing <laughs> reports, tell us how that came about Well, um, for that I have to thank someone called H. Edwards Clark, who was um, a, a great expert on greyhounds at the time. And he was, in fact, by profession, he was a tax inspector. He was a senior tax inspector at the Inland Revenue. But in his spare time, he used to uh, go to all the big course meetings and write about them for the Field magazine in particular, uh, the Sporting Press Weekly, which is published in Ireland to this day, and um, also, he wrote some very good books on the Greyhound. Um, if you can get your hands on them, they, they really are w w worth having. Yeah, um, I have several of them, and they, are, they yeah. are grand. Wonderful books, wonderful books. Anyway, um, H. Edwards Clark, Herbert Edwards Clark, my father always called him Bert, although other people called him Eddie. Um, Bert Clark was going to retire, and he said to my father, look, Tom, I'm don't want to write for the Irish paper any longer because I have to write for it every week, but I'm going to keep up writing with the field. If Charlie would like to, I'll hand the sporting press articles over to him. And I was just about to join my father in our family business. And I said, well, that's marvelous. I'd love to do that. But there's a sad end to it because Bert Clark um, was diagnosed with liver cancer in 1977. And he, um, it, it, took, it took him very quickly. And he died shortly after the Waterloo Cup in 1977. And I found myself not only writing the sporting press, but also I became the correspondent for the field as well. And then a couple of years after that, the National Coursing Club needed a new correspondent for their coursing calendar. And I took that on as well. And I've been doing it ever since. Then you became secretary of the National Coursing Club and keeper of the Greyhound Stud Book in 1988. How did that come about? Well, um, 
Olive Turner, who was the keeper of the Greyhound stud book and the secretary at the time was going to retire and they were looking for a replacement. Um, my father and I were about to close our business. Uh, we had a butter packing business, uh, which had developed out of our farming business. Um, we, we were originally farmers. My grandfather mixed farming with butter packing. And uh, conditions, marketing conditions at the time made butter packing a, a, you know, a dead loss. Um, it's all to do with the European Union. We won't go into that. <laughs> and, and anyway, we decided that there, there was no future in the business any longer. And at that time, I was approached by Bill Steadman, who's the chairman of the National Coursing Club at the time, and Michael Darnell, whom you would know, um, who's still treasurer of the National Coursing Club. And they asked me if I would take over Olive Turner's job. And I thought, yeah, that's a good thing. So I did. And I did it for 20 years. So your job, uh, two of your duties were to attend coursing meetings uh, throughout the coursing season and write up the, the reports for the coursing calendar publication that the National Coursing Club puts out. And then you also uh, handled the registry uh, aspect of the National Coursing Club. Is that correct? Yes, I did. Yes. And what, um, what did the registry in, in, entail? Well, it, it's, it's, it's what the National Greyhound Association does, of course, at Abilene. And that is that, um, you know, we registered, uh, the, you know, the, 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 the conception, the birth, the ownership uh, of all the greyhounds which were bred in England, Wales and Scotland. Ireland, of course, has its own separate stud book. So it was, uh, we, we, all those were recorded in the stud book and the stud book is published on an annual basis. And um, I mean, it was, quite, it, it was quite, quite, quite a task, the day job. I always enjoy asking Gary Guccione, formerly stud, American mm. uh, stud <laughs> bookkeeper, about uh, uh, names that, uh, that uh, owners try to sneak past him that were either risque or political or... Uh, and he's got he's got some good ones. What about you? Well, they they, they were many and various, of course. Um, and uh, as this, this is a family show, um, we we won't delve into the obscene ones. But <laughs> I, I I I I always enjoyed someone who tried to um, he, he wanted to. Uh, the first thing you would do when you looked at a name, apart from asking yourself the question, is this rude? And if the answer was no, it's not rude. You then say to yourself, all right, then, you idiot, spell it backwards. So someone who wanted to call all his dogs with the prefix Lamados, Lamados this and Lamados that, but it's Sodom all, of course, um, <laughs> spelt the wrong way around. So that one, we didn't get away with that one. But I like the clever namings as well, the people who could take the breeding of a dog and you know, come up with a, 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 a nice name. And one of them was um, the, uh, uh, Sir Philip Naylor Leyland, who's the present president of the National Coursing Club. He, he had a bitch which was by a, a Waterloo Cup winner called Hardly Ever. And um, the, the bitch which had, had, had bred the dog was called Royal Madam. So it was by hardly ever out of Royal Madam. So he called his bitch once a year. <laughs> oh, goodness. That's a Our good listeners one. can go away and think about that one. <laughs> well, I know, Charlie, over the course of the years, you've met quite a few characters among the human uh, coursing enthusiasts. Uh, uh, search back through your, your memory and tell us about your mo most one or two memorable characters in, in coursing? Um, well, I think probably when, 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 um, when I was a, a, a small boy and then later on, um, there was a, a lady in coursing called Lila Shannon. And Mrs. Shannon, um, who eventually became president of the National Coursing Club, like a lot of English coursing ladies, was a pretty tough proposition. And um, my brother and I were, were at a, she was also, she was secretary at the Cotswold coursing meeting. 
and my brother and I were there once. I suppose um, we were. Uh, I was probably about seven, and he would have been about twelve. And we're sitting on a wall, minding our own business, watching the coursing, and I can hear her shouting now, "Get off that wall!" <laughs> so after that, she she was always known in our family as. Old mother, get off that wall, Shannon. <laughs> and um, poor Lila, she died. Oh, when did she die? The year that I became secretary of the National Coursing Club, actually, 1988. And because I knew her all that time, and she was a splendidly tough person. She was. She could take. She'd take on anyone. But I mean, thinking of tough ladies, we had a most marvellous um, lady at our local coursing club which um, uh, was the Yeovil and Sherburn Club. And there, the secretary of the club was called Charlie Fox, would you believe? Um, and I'm not kidding, that was his real name. It was <laughs> Charlie Fox. And his wife was called May. And sometimes, of course, at, at course in meetings, people in the crowd would get a bit of streperous and out of line. And um, anyway, one day, some local um, Jack was, was giving Charlie Fox, the secretary, an, an earful. And um, May said, I can see her now. And she wore one of those great big white sort of riding mats that were popular back in the 1950s. And um, she said, don't you speak to my Charlie like that. <laughs> and she hit him flush on the chin. <laughs> and back he went into it flat on, the, flat on his back in the, in, 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 in the ditch. She had a marvellous right hook. So there, there, were plenty, there were plenty of tough ladies about. <laughs> well, in, a, in the few minutes we've got left uh, for today's show, uh, I wanted to have you, we're, we're going to devote a whole show to the, uh, the new book when it comes out in oh, December. But uh, tell us a little bit about uh, the, the, the new book and, and where you are in the production process and so forth. Well, I think the thing to probably explain is the title. Um, because it's called Please Mister, uh, the Golden Age of Greyhound Racing. And the title was was was, was inspired uh, for me by um, Timothy Sean O'Brien, who's the great-grandson of Owen Patrick Smith, who invented the electric hair, um, which made racing around an oval track possible. And uh, Timothy told me this wonderful story that his, his father who was organizing a coursing meeting um, in South Dakota, was watching the coursing and he felt a little a tug at his coat. And he looked down and there was a little girl. And the little girl said, please, mister. And he sort of tried to ignore her. And he said, please, mister, do they have to kill the rabbit? And he thought to himself, well, do we? And that set him off, and it took him, ooh, took him, you know, almost um, thirteen or fourteen years to manage it. But he invented the electric hare and set up the first track at Emeryville in California, and that was the beginning of greyhound racing. Um, please, Mister, do they have to kill the rabbit? <laughs> so, what was your inspiration for writing it? Uh, well, just interest in, in, in how it all started. And, of course, the more I looked into it, um, and particularly into Owen Patrick Smith's struggle to um, invent the electric hair in the first place, to get the track up and running, he started, in, he started trying in Salt Lake City. Then he went to Tucson. Then he went to New Orleans. Then he went to Houston. And only eventually in 1920 did he at last manage to put the money and the land and everything together so he could, they could build this track at, at Emeryville and start greyhound racing. And, of course, it then spread like wildfire. And the book also takes us from the USA in 1926. Of course, greyhound racing was exported from the USA to England, and there it really took off. The, the English were always actually keener on greyhound racing than its home country, America, because in uh, 1927, when they had the first Greyhound Derby at the White City Stadium in London, 
There are 100,000 people there. That's amazing. Unbelievable. 100,000 people. And they were still trying to get in from outside. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, the book is uh, where in the publication process, what's it going to look like, and where, where can people obtain it? Well, it's just gone to the printers um, on time, I'm glad to say. And um, it should be ready at the beginning of December. And you'll be able to buy it um, through um, our Facebook page, which is called The Greyhound and the Hare. There will be a button there that, you know, you'll get a form and you just need to fill it in, send it to us. We'll send you the book. And also we're going to make it available on eBay as well. Well, that's great. We'll have that. Uh, we'll, we'll feature the, the book on, on the show. We'll have you tell some stories uh, from it and talk about some of the great uh, racing greyhounds of the golden age. Uh, Thank you. I can't, I'm looking forward to that. But Charlie, it's been a fast hour. Uh, we really appreciate your coming on. There's, we'll have many more uh, shows with you on. I've, I've, I can already think of two or three where we want to talk about the, the great greyhounds of history and, and so forth. So uh, thanks for joining us, and uh, best of luck with the book, and we'll, we'll talk to you again when, uh, when it's ready to come out. Thank you very much, John. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks again for joining us on Greyhound Nation, and we'll see you at the next episode. Thanks so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe to Greyhound Nation wherever you get your podcasts. You can also write to us via the contact form on our website, greyhoundnation.dog. That's greyhoundnation.dog. We're also on Facebook. Search for our Grey Nation show page. This episode was produced in collaboration with host John Parker. Our theme music was composed and performed by Dimitri Taras. Thanks also to this episode's guest, Charlie Blanning, author of The Greyhound and the Hare. Charlie has a new book arriving in December 2020, Please Mister, The Golden Age of Greyhound Racing. You can learn more about Charlie and his books on Facebook. Search for The Greyhound and the Hare page. I'm Michael Burns, and you've been listening to Greyhound Nation.